Hi, it's Mark Sisson. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, where we deliver a variety of fresh content to help you live awesome. Enjoy the show. Engage with us online at marksdailyapple.com and on social media, and send your questions to info at primalblueprint.com. Hey everyone, Mark Sisson here. Thanks for joining us today on the Primal Blueprint Podcast, uh, coming to you from the Primal Blueprint Podcast studios in lovely Malibu, where every day is an awesome day. Today is no exception. Um, Let's see, to catch you up, uh, my book, The Keto Reset Diet, is out now, and it's doing very well, and it was quite an awesome experiment for me because I had, uh, I've been living pretty well the last 10 or 15 years, primally, you know, I had all the energy, I had all the, um, the muscle mass, the strength, the endurance, all those things that I thought uh, I had kind of dialed in uh, for the rest of my life. And yet, uh, I had read enough about the keto diet to think in terms of, well, maybe there's something else out there. Maybe there's another level of performance that I can seek. And uh, sure enough, uh, spending time in ketosis and spending time in the keto zone, as I call it, uh, really did ramp up my fat burning, ramped up my energy levels, decreased the amount of sleep I needed decreased inflammation, uh, and got me thinking about uh, some of the other ways in which we look at improving performance in a way that is graceful and with ease rather than with struggling and suffering. Uh, And it brought to mind my good old buddy from, I don't know, 30 years ago, Jacques DeVore. Uh, Jacques and I Go back to uh, the days of the Sports Club LA where we used to vie for fittest man in the gym. <laughs> yes, we did. And that's back in the day when Sports Club LA was quite the gym. It was a 100,000 square foot urban country club and anyone who was anyone belonged there. But uh, Jacques, Jacques and I have known each other uh, ever since then over the years. We've shared a love of performance, uh, both in terms of endurance uh, as well as in terms of uh, weightlifting because Jacques had a combination of both, having a background as a wrestler. Um, Jacques was a top money manager for a while. In fact, I, uh, he was on the cover of a, of a uh, hedge fund magazine uh, one quarter for um, outstanding performance, but uh, had always felt that <clears throat> performance was his bailiwick. And, and uh, he spent time as a top uh, endurance cyclist, a uh, mountain biker and road cyclist. Um, and a few years ago, started his own gym to look at ways in which he could, again, improve performance uh, the most efficient way possible. And so he has a gym uh, in West LA right now called Sirens and Titans. And um, and he's here with me today in my house. Welcome, Jock. Thanks for having me, Mark. Good yeah. to see you again. Yeah, likewise. Um, we don't see enough, enough of each other these days, it seems. So in talking about um, uh, performance, uh, you have just come out with a book called Maximum Overload for Cyclists, published by Rodale. Uh, it's doing quite well. Uh, and the premise of the book, which we'll get into shortly, but uh, it's basically about this concept that you've had uh, for as, almost as long as I've known you, but you've really developed it well over the last 10 years, and that is that there's a critical component missing in most endurance athletes, and we could extend that also to most power athletes as well, but in terms of endurance athletes and, and endurance performance, what is the essential element that's missing? Yeah, I think there, I call it the gap in the book. And uh, the endurance athletes kind of left in this gap where if they want to add strength and conditioning to their uh, in the weight room, 
most of the endurance coaches have never lifted any weights. And then if you go to the National Strength and Conditioning Association annual trade show, you have a bunch of guys that are bald head, goatees, and no necks. And so if I, so, you're trying to say, okay, so what does the endurance athlete do? If you go to Interbike this weekend, it's going on this weekend, you could literally, you and I could grab some of the professional cyclists, put them on our hip and run down the hall with them uh, because they're not very big men. And they look big on the bike, but it's, you know, a 165-pound guy is considered a big cyclist in the, in the peloton. So the poor endurance athletes left out in the middle. What do I do? Because the strength coach is trying to jerry-rig strength and conditioning for a football player uh, program to the uh, endurance athlete. And then the uh, endurance coach usually says, ah, don't worry about that. When I was at the, uh, uh, got my uh, elite level cycling uh, certification, I went through a two-day program at the Olympic Training Center in Chula Vista. And so the exercise physiologist comes in and says, you know, this was 17 years ago and says, "Ah, you know, weightlifting really hasn't shown its hand to improve endurance uh, performance much. Just do big chain ring work. So I raise my hand and I go, well, why even do the big chain ring work if strength's not the limiting factor? And he goes, uh, 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 uh. Because no one had ever really looked at it. You posed an existential question. Exactly. He couldn't couldn't answer the question. So my feeling is uh, you can only get, and you as an endurance athlete, an elite endurance athlete, every year you reach, uh, there's an amortization schedule to how long you can hold fitness and improve it. And it starts to diminish as age starts to kick in and it gets more difficult to do. And all everyone does is say, well, I'm going to do more running or I'm going to get on the bike longer. And then we get into this whole chronic cardio that uh, we've t- you've talked a, lo- a lot about, which a lot of us have experienced over the years that have been cardio athletes. And it's just it's devastating to your body. So I said, why haven't we looked more at the strength side of the equation? Why have we not? Because if you look at a bike race, uh, if you look at sports for that matter, uh, you're old enough and I'm old enough to remember when basketball players didn't lift weights, mm-hmm. baseball players would ruin their throw. You look at the old Jerry West when he was playing for the Lakers, he was a skinny guy. You look at LeBron James. Now these guys are in the weight room lifting. So cycling has just been one of those sports and endurance, even running uh, has been late to the game in terms of strength and conditioning. Well, the average, but the average age group uh, athlete, uh, competitor in triathlons, marathons, uh, swimming events, uh, cycling events, um, you know, would say, well, wait a minute, I'm, I'm training specifically for my sport. So I'm putting a lot of time on the bike because that's what I need to do uh, to be better at biking. Um, I'm building my engine because I'm theoretically learning how to burn fat as a fuel source because um, all the science has proven that the better you are at burning fat, uh, the faster you'll go, the, the better uh, performance you'll, you'll put in in an event. Um, but you brought up this concept of power and, and the fact that that the, the idea of sustainability of power over time, uh, that that's really what separates uh, the average athlete from the superior athlete. There's this, it's this ability to hold sustained power. In cycling, we look at it in terms of, of watts on the bike. How many watts can you put out? And even more specifically, watts per kilogram, uh, because that translates directly to speed over time. And because watts is an indicator of power, um, it's a, it's a nice metric that we use, but the idea of, 
of maximum sustained power. Let's go a little bit into that. Sure, sure. Uh, The uh, equation for power, the physics is force times velocity equals power, absolute power. The measurements of absolute power that most people use are how high can you jump? Uh, vertically, how high can you broad jump? If you were to look at uh, a power meter on a bike, you would say, okay, let's roll out uh, and let's do a hundred meter sprint. And can you put a thousand watts on? Then that's your maximum absolute power. And in the book, I call it APO, absolute power output. But that's not what wins a bike race. What wins a bike race is the ability to hold the highest percentage of that thousand watts the longest. Mm-hmm. It wins in a triathlon. It wins in everything. It's it's very rare that it comes down to a sprint. Uh, and when you're looking at the GC, like a Froome or somebody else that's a cyclist over 21 days, it's that in those inflection points where they can hold power longer. So maximum sustainable power, if that's what wins most endurance sports, why don't we train that way to try to uh, support that? We don't. And so what happens with sustainable power is it's, it doesn't mean that you're going to get over a thousand Watts anymore. It doesn't mean you're going to do 1200 Watts. What it means is if you time trial at 300 Watts, if you could time trial at 320 or 330, then the sustainable power, that percentage of your maximum is greater. So, and you can get that in the weight room. Right. And so another, another coming at this from a different angle, you could argue that if power by itself or strength by itself were the metric, then, you know, the, the strongest man in the world, you know, Magnus Magnuson or whatever, exactly. you know, would win a bike race. 100%. Um, but because you're trying to um, achieve this, this sustainable power, uh, at some point, it matters less about your absolute power and more about your, your ability to, ha- to hold a higher percentage of your absolute over time. Exactly. So um, it's interesting to me that, that as intuitive as that is and as intuitively obvious as that is, that trainers in the endurance community haven't really figured out a way to train that other than, like you say, big chain ring work or, you know, the standard go to the gym, ten, three sets of 10 reps of, you know, 85% max weight or whatever, um, and then move on to the next machine. It's even worse than that. What a lot of people will do is they say, well, I, I need to be sports specific. And cycling is all these repetitions. So they go into the gym, they get on a leg press or they do deadlifts or they do something else. And they'll say, well, I'm going to do hundreds and hundreds of light reps. And then they add, they start adding body weight because that's what bodybuilders do. Right. So it gets worse. It's just not the idea of going in the weight room and doing some core because that's typically what you see in the weight room with most endurance athletes. Okay, we'll work on your core. We'll do this. We'll do that. But they never really get to the point where they understand that power is what you need to focus on and the sustainability of that power. Right. So let's talk about what it takes physiologically to, to achieve that maximum sustained power. Theoretically, you've got you know, a number of muscle fibers, let's say you're a cyclist or a runner Mm -hmm. in your legs. Um, And for the most part, uh, you don't use all of those fibers all the time. In fact, because the body tends to be very economical, it tries to use as few fibers as possible to do the work required. Mm -hmm. So how do you cajole the body into um, digging deeper, if you will? How do you cajole the body into recruiting more and more fibers so that in strengthening those fibers and, and incorporating those fibers into 
uh, a longer work effort. Yeah, it came to me. Uh, I had read this research by these two Stanford professors that had created this thing at the time. It was called the Abacor. Now it's called Cool Control. And they were testing uh, power lifters at the time to see if they could get bigger lifts by cooling the hands in a vacuum. And they found that the limiter for a lot of these lifts, when they would get you know late into a workout, was the muscle would heat up. And so uh, I started thinking about that. And I started saying, wow, I go, if you can get bigger lifts by cooling the muscle, mm-hmm. what would happen if you didn't let the muscle heat up that much? So in other words, if you kept the amount of repetitions low enough that you could still produce your maximum output, for a lot more time. So you would get, and then what you just said earlier about the recruitment, you have, you know, our body's uh, job is to stop us from killing ourselves. So it's constantly trying to conserve energy so that we can continue to live. And at some point, one time I did an ultra endurance mountain bike race and Theoretically, you should be able to get on a bike, keep feeding yourself, and ride forever. I mean, if, theoretically, yeah. theoretically, if you could, if you could take in the nutrients. But the problem is, this is, and I learned this firsthand yeah. in that twelve hours of Big Bear that I did on my mountain bike race. I couldn't hold food down anymore. Yeah. I would swallow it and I would throw it up. Yeah. Because so your body says, I'm going to stop you from going longer by not letting you eat anymore. So your body's trying to do that. So what? By doing these mini sets, which are in the book, so what we do is we establish this baseline of power, and then we say, how can we spend more time in that maximum zone? Mm -hmm. The way, uh, after reading that research from those Stanford professors, I said, if I keep the number of reps low enough, but still the output high enough, and so I'll give you an example that's pretty rudimentary, is let's just say you did a bicep curl. And you can do 10 bicep curls in a row with 25 pounds. So that's a total overload of 250 pounds. Mm-hmm. Pretty easy to understand. And then, and that's fairly quickly so that so the last repetition. It's like you can't, you, you barely can't get it on. Up. Yeah, you're going on the, on the right. 10th one. Right. If I was to break that into three repetitions, rest for five seconds, three repetitions, rest for five seconds, three repetitions, rest for five seconds, I would get 12 to 15 reps. That's a 20 to 30 to 50% increase in the the absolute amount of work. So that's where the concept came from, is I said, what if we, and no one does it with power. Typically, a power workout is structured this way. You'll do six jumps in a row on a plyo box, and then you start to fatigue, and then you're getting worried, am I going to blow my shins up because I'm going to miss the top of the box? And you stop. You fully recover, you do another one. If you were to do three of those jumps in a row, rest for five to 10 seconds, three of those jumps in a row, rest, you would see that you would get 20 to 30 to 40% more overload in those sets. And then the what you talked about at the beginning of this little section is the recruitment of the muscle fiber becomes greater because you keep asking your body to hit the top of that box. And in order to do that, it has to recruit more and more muscle fiber because there is fatigue taking place, but just not enough. So in the book, I say you're recruiting more domestiques. Yeah, That's yeah. really what you're doing is you're hiring more people to break the wind and do set the tempo earlier. So you're not going to jump any higher than that box level. But then what's going to happen is that first hill climb that you're on, you're only working at 50 percent where before you might have been, you know, putting a 70% output out. So, and then by that last hill climb, when you used to get dropped, 
now you still have uh, matches to burn. That's great. Um, just a quick story on the Abacor. I forget if we talked about this, but they gave me a unit. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I, t- I would take it to the gym with me. And it's, it looks like an a, a OGO gym bag or something like mm-hmm. that. It's a pretty significant unit, right? And yeah. then I do my... Uh, you know, I do my pull-ups, for instance, right. and then I stick my hand. In the, in the people unit. thought you were crazy. I, they, they were, for like, it, it's it's been like four years. People still call me Cool Hand Luke. <laughs> That's awesome. Because of because of when I brought the Abacor in. That's great. It was interesting. It was an interesting concept. So, yeah. but, but same kind of thing, which is which is how do you bypass the the the. Um, fatigue mechanism, the governor that the brain has 100%. Uh, on on you doing more work and not hurting yourself. And one way you bypass it is is to do it in a way that does not hurt yourself, but still gets the work done and accomplished. So this is pretty interesting, this whole maximum overload principle. Um, and so let's talk about, uh, because I, you and I first talked about this, I'm going to say five years ago, uh, when we when we met Dave Zabriskie. Exactly, 100%. Who was a... Uh, you know, a, a, a former, well, he was still a world-class cyclist. He'd, he'd, he had, in the last year or two, had won, I think, a uh, world time trial championship or something like he that. He had won the Tour de California. He had won the Tour de California. But Dave was in his 30s now, and that's old for a cyclist, and was starting to, um, to um, you know, wonder how he was going to keep up with the young guys, and um, had a little unfortunate event where he had to admit to some, uh, some doping. So, uh, the, the, you know, the, the good news was that since everybody else was sort of now back to a level playing field, he really did have to think about in terms of, okay, how do I, you know, what's the technology I use to get to the next level? So talk a little bit about. Sure. So uh, he would come up to my Santa Barbara center at the time. And we had a piece of isokinetic equipment. Isokinetic equipment is just a jumping, think of a jumping squat machine with a power meter on it. So it shows it in foot pounds, how much power he was putting out. And so we uh, evaluated what he could do as a baseline. We took baseline tests on his power on the bike, everything else like that. And then we started applying the principles that we just talked about. So we built a big base. Zabriskie was built like a climber, like a rock climber. He had really good upper body strength. He had good mobility. Uh, So a lot of the problems that you would see with a lot of cyclists that don't do, that aren't as versatile, aren't as good of an athlete as he was, he didn't have. Mm -hmm. So we took his, we started with increasing, remember the the description of the uh, equation, force times distance divided by time. Strength is your ability to generate a force. So we worked on deadlifts, the basic lifts, a lot of single leg unilateral work, a lot of negatives on the deadlift. We got a strength way up. He By the way, just in terms of deadlifts alone, um, you know, the point you made about this being a good all-around athlete, sometimes with a cyclist, you'll find that the weakest element, the, the, the basically the weakest link or the or the, the bottleneck is like the shoulders and the arms oh, yeah. on a deadlift, oh, yeah. right? It's not, yeah. and you're trying to build core and build, you know, glutes and, and, uh, yeah. and, and everything and, and uh you can't get to that point yet because you're not strong enough to hold the freaking weight. Or the mobility is so poor. Yeah. I had John Howard uh, at my gym. Who was one of the top cyclists this country's ever produced. And he did triathlons at one. He won the Ironman Iron one year. Yeah. yeah, I mean, amazing athlete, but he's in his 60s. He's still racing, but he has so much upper body kyphosis in his, uh, in his and he's so tight in his thoracic spine because he sat on a bike 
for longer than, sure. than, than most people have ever lived. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so the first thing, I couldn't even get him down into that position in a deadlift because he was so tight. So we worked on it. And we, in the book, we talk about a lot of these mobility exercises. And we had a lot of success with opening up his upper thoracic spine. So what you say is true to get him down there. So we took Zabriskie from... 150 pound deadlift, a, a 265 deadlift in about less than eight weeks. Uh, and then we started uh, during this time, started working on the power. Now, the best way to understand this is he would jump. If he was to do six jumps in a row, he would put out about a hundred foot pounds in each jump. Now these uh, are weighted jumps. These are, uh, it's a, on an isokinetic yeah, machine. Yeah. So it measures, it gives more resistance as he increases yeah. velocity. So, uh, he would uh, it would be a hundred foot pound output, uh, and so if we did it the traditional way, we would have done three sets, six hundred foot pounds in each set because he was doing six sets per, and then we would go do some endurance jumping. Yeah, That's, this is typical of how it's right. done. So As, because the endurance community thinks that three sets of anything isn't enough. Exactly, the workouts can't be over. No, because you can't have done enough work. So yeah. You have to go do something else. Exactly, which only just diminishes the work you just did. Hundred percent. So then what we did is we started doing the maximum sustained power sets. And when I first started with him, we were doing like two minutes of jumping every fifteen seconds. He would do four jumps. So he would do four jumps in a row, rest for uh, the all the way to the 15-second mark. So he was basically getting, you know, 16 jumps every minute. So we would do 32 jumps instead of that six times three of 18. We were doubling the output all at 100 foot-pounds or above. Now, my rule of thumb was if he dropped below 10%, on the majority of those four jumps, then we would cut it up because then he's at a suboptimum output and he's not putting out that high output. We finally, at the end, we got to six minutes straight. Wow. Six minutes, six jumps. Mm -hmm. Six minutes, six jumps at maximum. He was doing close to 100 jumps per set. His power on the bike just went through the roof. We added almost 15% uh, increase in his overall power. He says he never ridden that well other than at one point in time when uh, he actually beat Nibbly up a, a climb. Right. Because uh, he was a time trialist. He wasn't a climber. He wasn't a climber. And there's a, there's a difference. There's a distinction between the two. Um, and I remember you talking about his going out in the mountains here in in uh, Malibu and out climbing Christian Vandeveld, yeah. who is a climber. Yeah, exactly. You know, to, yeah. to Vandeveld's yep. surprise mm -hmm. and chagrin. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So what he was able to do was, number one, we built the force production up. So his absolute power went up dramatically yeah. by increasing the force and then increasing the velocity. We did those both. And we put that baseline together by building up all of that. So his absolute power did go up. Oh, yes. His absolute power yeah. went up. But then once we got to that uh, baseline and season over season, you're not going to see it go up, especially for a guy that's as mature as he is uh, at his stage and age yeah. and everything else. We're going to get to a baseline pretty quick. And then, you know, the next year you may add another five or 10% to his deadlift, but I'm not trying to turn him into a weightlifter. Yeah. So 265 was plenty. Uh, and then uh, all we were trying to do was extend the amount of time that he could hold that power for. Mm -hmm. So we went from two minutes to three minutes to four four minutes to finally six minutes, three sets of six minutes. Mm -hmm. So he was doing almost, I think, uh, 300 jumps at maximum. Wow. And then what the body did, it accommodated and made an adaptation that said, okay, I have to recruit more and more muscle fiber. During this whole time, he lost 13 pounds. Wow. Which is, which is a good thing. Exactly. I mean, he was, he was not a 
that guy to begin with. No. He was, you know, 165 coming in, 166, yeah. Yeah. right? Yeah. He got down to the low of 150. Exactly. Yeah. So he lost so weight. So we lost weight. And then now we're going to talk about the, like the key component, which is watts per kilogram. Exactly. Not only his absolute power went yeah. up, not only his, um, his sustained power and his ability to hold power at a high level for a long time went up, but his watts per kilogram went up because he lost the weight. Exactly. Because a lot of cyclists are afraid of gaining weight. They go, if I go into the weight room, I'm going to put on size because, yeah. you know, the weightlifting in the U.S. basically came from bodybuilding. Yeah. Uh, almost everybody had this bodybuilding mentality. And a lot of what Mel Siff and Vershansky and all these old school strength coaches from way back in the 60s were doing in the Eastern Bloc were just starting. That's CrossFit today. Yeah. You know, I mean, what those guys were doing was so far ahead of time, but they understood power. Mm -hmm. We understood how to put muscle on and we did. Yeah. And that's what Schwarzenegger and Columbo and all those guys that were. And so a lot of people perceived weightlifting as bodybuilding. Right. You can get a neuromuscular response in strength. And there's so many there's so much science still coming out on where does strength really come from? Mm -hmm. Is it a neural drive? Is it a muscle size? Is it pination angle? What are the things that are really driving strength in your muscles? And it's different from person to person. Right. So let's talk a little bit about uh, Dave's diet during all sure. this. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, he came to you first because he was interested in changing the diet. And uh, he had been a vegetarian uh, prior to this. And then he said, okay, it wasn't working for him on the bike. So he ended up going paleo mm -hmm. and, uh, and primal and said, okay, I'm going to change this and uh, eat. And so he was basically eating organic protein sources wherever possible. Lots of, uh, you know, color in his diet and then uh, fruits in moderation. And he was also reducing the amount of uh, glucose he was taking in on the bike. Yeah. So he was trying to train in that low glycogen state and then he would race in the high glycogen state. Unfortunately, you know, he crashed and broke his collarbone. We never really got to see the full blossoming of this but uh, his power on the bike and you know all the training peaks was amazing this guy could go out and ride up the coast solo not on a time trial bike at 325 watts for th three and a half hours wow. straight never yeah. never cracking yeah it was amazing yeah, yeah. Uh, what about runners how does this work for runners it it, it works i uh for swimmers runners, then this is the reason why it works so well for endurance athletes. You have to have a cardio base. Yeah. Think about that six minute run, jumping for six minutes straight. Yeah. His heart rate was pegged. <laughs> so you have to have the cardio capacity in order to handle the workouts. And that's why you have to ease into them. So for runners, it works well. You just change the exercises. Yeah. You know, you may do something completely different uh, for a runner, but the jumping squat and depending on what the distance of the runner is, if it's more, you know, uh, as you know, being a triathlete, a lot of triathletes shuffle. You know, that's what they do. They don't get full hip extension. It's, it's all that's left. It's it. Because, yeah, it's exactly. But it's very quad dominant. Yeah. Yeah. So you have to be careful about, you know, what you're going to do is you're going to engage hips more, which is good. Because then there's another part of the engine that's capable of carrying some of the load. And, yeah. and uh, so it works for runners. It works for swimmers anywhere. You just have to come up with a different exercise protocol and then figure out a way to measure it. Mm -hmm. If you were doing a swimmer, we have this piece of equipment called the VersaPulley where I can actually do a swim stroke and measure the power output on it right. and do the exact same thing. So you can do the mini sets the exact same way for swimming, for running, for anything. And I did it with a 1500 meter runner that went to Florida state 
uh, scholarship to athlete. Uh, and I would coach him over the phone and he improved dramatically. We did it within a park on a bench doing jumps and step down, jump, mm-hmm. step down, jump, step down. And he would time the number of jumps. Mm-hmm. You know, the poor man's power meter is either time and distance or numbers and distance. You right, don't have right. to have a power meter to go out there and measure power. Right. As long as you have a watch and uh, exactly, and either know the weight that you're working with or uh, the speed at which you're going. Exactly. Um, so what about the average citizen? Is this something that the average person could benefit from? hundred percent. Uh, I think as you, I think we, we agree on this, you know, uh, most people don't lift heavy enough. They're afraid of it. My back, my, this, my, that, or the other, and it's so valuable. Uh, but even after that power is always the hardest thing for people to stay on top of. And the reason why you don't see hundred meter sprinters in their late thirties, but you see marathoners in their late thirties and forties winning the LA marathon is because it's absolute power output. It's only 100 meters. You have to have huge amounts of force production and fast twitch muscle fiber. And that peaks at about 24, 25 years old. And then after that, you start to lose it. So it's one of the things that we lose is our ability to produce power. And after one of these workouts, I call it the old man get up. I know when I'm old, if I start having to put my hands on my knees and get unweight my hips and use my arms to produce the power in my hips and I can't get up anymore. That's what I, I, that's my own barometer of my own personal fitness. If I get to there, then I got a problem. So I'm going to watch myself getting off this sofa. Exactly. So, so the, uh, with power, it's a high speed contraction. We lose that ability to have that high speed contraction. And so if you can do it in a controlled fashion, power is something that everybody should add to their game. And if you are a cyclist or you are, you become a better athlete with this program, number one, because of some of the things we talked about mobility wise. Yeah. Strength improvement is huge across the board. And then you add that last component of absolute power. And then finally, the icing on the cake is maximum sustainable power. You are bulletproof. You just go, holy, you go out and do anything that you do normally, ski, run, you know, swim, uh, hike. You're going to go, holy smokes, man, I'm just blowing everything up. So I suspect that that's um, probably the, the, the most accurate measure of the winner of the CrossFit Games, too. Oh, yeah. It would be sustained power. It is. Because a lot of these things are, you know, Metcon-type workouts where you got, um, you know, multiple reps of multiple exercises and then multiple sets of those things. Exactly. No doubt about it. Um, and it's, it would be easy for someone who was reasonably well-trained to get through the first you know, two minutes of it. Right. But to get through seven minutes of it is a whole different ballgame. Well, that's why you see a lot of injury, unfortunately, in some of those games, because as the fatigue sets in, then the weight goes to the joint. Yeah. Because you can't sustain that. And if if you haven't trained. You haven't trained that, then you're in a situation where you're going to expose yourself to potential injury. So again, back to like, you know, not just a cyclist or runner or swimmer or traffic, but but anybody who's involved in any kind of a sport that that requires, you know, a continuous output of power yeah. would be well served by 100%. training this way. I ask uh, basketball players and volleyball players and tennis players all the time. I go, let me ask you something. If you could be as explosive in the fourth quarter of the game as you are in the first quarter, how much more would you win? They all go, I mean, are you kidding? Yeah. That's what we're really talking about here is the ability. If you can sustain power, then when everyone else, your competition can't, you don't have to jump any higher to beat him to the ball. Well, and, and it, I, the examples I can think of uh, would be, um, in my own personal experience, cycling and running, where you know everybody can keep up with everybody for the first half of the race, 
And then there's a little bit of attrition in the last quarter. And then the, the biggest attrition of all happens in the fourth, in the, in the, in the last quarter of the race, where um, it doesn't just drop off a little bit. It falls apart. And so guys who are like only, you know, 20 seconds ahead of you at the halfway point of the marathon finish 10 minutes behind you. At exactly. The end. Yeah. It's those inflection points. Yeah. It's the inflection point. And if you, if you look at it, the, the Tour de France that we had recently, it's where those surges take place and you can't hold that, that power for that period in time. That's the difference. That's when the guard changes, so to speak, where the old guard gets dropped and the new young rider comes up right. because he's able to sustain that power and then make that break because then he just goes right back to his tempo. It's the same power output, but he just surged it one more time, right. was able to sustain that power for one more effort. And if I'm training uh, a linebacker in football, it's the same principle, but the power is much higher and the duration of time is much less. A hundred meter sprint, right? I, I, I look in terms of, they all have the same turnover, yeah, and it's who can generate the more, more the most force right. with each step, right, and have the same turnover, which is forty three steps per exactly. minute or something like that. Yeah, what, I forget where the number is. It's about forty some odd. Yeah, um, and yet, where what happens is at seventy meters, some of these guys their force drops, and even though the turnover is the same, they're not generating enough. Yeah, you know, they're losing an inch per stride. Or exactly. Per stride. Yeah. Yeah, then uh, Usain Bolt was an exception to the rule. He had less steps. Yeah, but he had the same. Yeah, but the point is, he had the same turnover. He had the same turnover. He had the same turnover, but fewer steps because he because because of his size and because of his absolute power. Exactly. And then his ability to sustain it, he was able to get two more inches per stride. Right. Than than everyone except Justin Gap. Where you really see the sustainable power in track is when you get to like two hundred meters and above. Yeah. Because then. Oh, the four hundred is the. Yeah. Well, the hundred meter, the you know, and the best way to put it is your best hundred meter sprinter may not be your best four hundred meter sprinter. Yeah. Because he can't sustain that power that yeah. long. And typically, he doesn't have the ability. No, what, what you typically have is, a, is, a, is somebody who doubles in the 100 and the 200. Right. Or somebody who doubles in the 200 and 400. Right. But nobody who covers all that ground. No. Except no. Allison Felix. Yeah, except Allison <laughs> Felix. Exactly. Right. Uh, all right. So let's see. What else do we want to talk about? Um, mobility for a second. We, we mentioned mobility. You, met, you mentioned John Howard and his, um, his challenges. Uh, and those challenges were... We're, we're trying to overcome just the biomechanics of getting to the point where he can actually do the work that right. was going to build power. Right. Exactly. Well, uh, people in CrossFit has done this very well. They look at fitness as a lot of different components, mobility, yeah. stability, strength, power, power endurance. You could add a number of other, I would say maximum sustainable power would be a, a measurement of uh, fitness today in my uh, per, uh, view of it. So mobility you have to, and, and people, the best way to look at mobility and all of this is if you're injured and you go to rehab, because it's just a, an extreme version of how your body moves. The first thing a physical therapist will do is try to get proprioception. They're going to try to get mobility first so that you can move your arm. If you're reaching your arm out, you're stabilizing all of here for me to hold my arm out in front of me. So you have to have the mobility first. And then you have to have the stability. And then there's this, I call it a choreography of muscles that take place. There has to be a series of how muscles fire together. And pro athletes and really elite athletes get better and better and better at that. So a lot of their efficiency, what we talked about earlier, our body's not trying to always find and conserve energy. They get better at conserving energy. 
They may not necessarily be stronger than you, but they're better at conserving energy longer so that they're stronger than you when they need to be. Yeah. Uh, and then they can do some amazing things. So then you get that stability and then you have to bring a foundation of strength. So the mobility has to have, has to happen. And so a lot of people, I don't even call, we have a dynamic warm up, which is basically a mobility, a bunch of mobility exercises that we start all of our workouts with. Clients want to skip it. Yeah, because yeah. it's not the workout. Right, right, right. They want to jump right to. So I don't even call it a warm up anymore. Yeah. I call it the this workout. is part of the workout. Yeah, and you know, so we go through mobilizing hips, mobilizing T spine, mobilizing lower back, and then we go through stabilizing, and then we go through hip activation and muscle firing and trying to get prepped for the rest of the uh, workout. Yeah, you have to earn the right to get to 100%. the meat of the workout, or what we, you know, what they perceive as the meat of the workout, but it's, it's actually all. And elite athletes. Well, I was training Felix. Sanchez, who was a hurdler, and he needs a lot of mobility to hurdle, two-time Olympian, a gold medalist, he would be there 45 minutes before his workout, doing all of his own mobility and foam rolling and prepping, because elite athletes know this is what you have to do to get the most performance. Plus, they have the time. And they have the time, (laughs) of course. Now, we don't have the time. So, uh, you know, uh, I can't have people in there for four hours. They wouldn't pay for it. But we do give them – there is a minimal uh, amount of value that you have to have. If we talk about getting ready to do what is going to be the focal point of the exercise, depending on your sport, in this case, if it's weighted weighted jumps, um, if it's, you know, whatever, it's deadlifts or whatever – um, that's still only going to be six or eight minutes. Exactly. And, and then, and literally, and then you're done, but you need to earn the right by doing the work beforehand. So it still becomes a 30 minute, 30, 40 minute workout. Exactly. And typically what I do is we go through the a mobility work and then we go to the strength part of it. Cause there's a thing called post-activation potentiation. And what that is, is if I want to get performance in a power exercise and I do strength first, I'll get more overloads in the power because the muscles are firing so well from the heavy loads that we did in the strength. So typically I design the workout to focus on power because that's the ultimate equalizer. And that's what we're eventually shooting for is the long power. So we'll do some, you know, minimal amounts of reps, good warm up, heavy lifts, and then we bounce to the power, uh, you know, depending on where we are in the uh, design and the, and the periodization of the, uh, of the, of the workouts. Right. So what do you think the, um, uh, the basic uh, adoption of this kind of principle looks like in the next uh, couple of years? Are athletes going to start doing that? I think so. I, I, you know, the responses that I've gotten uh, from the pros that I have worked with has been tremendous. Uh, the only thing that I've done is I've pieced together different pieces of science to come up with this conclusion and then have trained with people anecdotally. We haven't done a double-blind scientific study with an athlete, which I would love. Oh, to forget do. about it then. It's just bro yeah, science. Exactly. No, I mean, that's, I spent my life putting together different scientific right. premises to come up with a, you know, right. an idea about how we should live our lives. So far it's worked pretty well. Exactly. Yeah. And so the fight that you have fought is going to be somewhat similar because uh, people will look at it and go, okay, there's, there is, especially in strength and conditioning, a certain way of doing things, you know, an established classical strength approach, you know, Olympic lifts, you know, single kettlebells, these types of things for power. And uh, even when you look at intervals, because intervals is a power exercise, right, right. and you can do this with your intervals. I know you do a lot of sprinting. If you wanted to get a bigger overload one day, try this. Don't sprint at about 
a tenth of the distance that you normally sprint, rest for a second, sprint again, and watch how much further you'll go at mm-hmm. that maximum speed. Mm-hmm. It's the same exact principle. So you mm-hmm. can do it with your sprint so you can get a big overload day when you want to do that mm-hmm. within your sprinting. And so, uh, but people have to, I just looked at the same thing that we're doing with fresh eyes and said, why aren't we training for sustainable power if that's what wins the races and the games? Yeah. And, and just from a from an economics point of view, if you look at um, you know the, the amount of work that you're doing, if you say the only reason that the body um, is prompted to make an adaptation is because the workload is more than it's used to. Um, but if you all you've been doing is again three sets of ten repetitions of whatever you can do until failure, mm-hmm. the body says, "Hey, I know how to do that stuff. I can do that fine. Right. So I don't need to adapt." But what we're doing here is sort of again tricking the body, if you will, into taking on more work than it's used to doing so that it'll recognize and, and uh, you know, incorporate deeper and deeper fibers and, and build that neuromuscular connection patterning, uh, the proprioception and all the things we talk about that you otherwise don't access doing the same routine in the gym all the time. 100%. And here's where you really see the big bump. Uh, all of your subsequent cardio workouts have much greater value. As you know, being a competitive athlete for as long as you are, there's a certain point where you go, I'm not going to get my heart rate up any higher. I'm not going to see my VO2 max change much from season to season, maybe 5 to 10% because you're detraining yeah. and you're just bringing it back up to where it was. The minute you can add more power in your legs, you can overload your heart and lungs Uh, a lot more. So your intervals have greater value. Your tempo runs and tempo rides have greater value. Everything has greater value. And then about two months after you've got this newly found power plant in your legs, you see it on the bike Mm -hmm. and you go, holy smokes. If you look at, they have a thing called a, uh, a, 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 a trim index, which takes into account how, how long you're in a particular heart rate to see the total stress on your body, and you can calculate what that is. You're going to find that you're going to get bigger overloads. What you just talked about, you have to have an overload. As you mature as an athlete, it's harder and harder to get overloads because the legs are going to be the problem. They can't get the heart. You know, or the joints or the tendons yeah. of the ligaments become the problem. Exactly. But, yeah. but what happens is the reason why a marathoner can win the LA Marathon in their 40s is because they don't have to have that high-end output. So if you can get that high-end output in your training, how much better are you when you're racing? That's what happens. And then one of the things we didn't talk about, but I think it's important to mention, is as you recruit fibers deeper and deeper, there is a mitochondrial effect there. The the muscle gets the message that um, because that that, that, um, uh, contraction requires energy, requires ATP, in order to get enough ATP to do that, um, we have to build more mitochondria. So the, the, the muscles become better, uh, more adept at uh, extracting energy from fat through the mitochondria and, and glucose for that matter as well. Um, there's a bit of a, uh, an increase in capillary perfusion. There is. Uh, the body tends to want to increase the plumbing supply to give uh, more oxygen to those muscle fibers too. Yeah, and the science that sh- uh, com- looks at weightlifting uh, and how it impacts endurance athletes it you know one of the biggest contributors is efficiency yeah. so because of what you're just talking about it adds efficiency so you become much more efficient at those muscles being oxygenated yeah um all right anything else you want to talk about no i think We're that good. you know we've covered it cool yeah well the book is called uh, maximum overload for cyclists 
um, published by Rodale Press. Uh, the book is by Jacques Devore with Roy Wallach and um, from Rodale. That's a great book. Um, awesome information there, whether or not you were an elite athlete or just someone who wants to improve your performance in life, which I am all about performing in life. Uh, Jacques, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. And uh, thank you for listening. We'll see you next time on the Primal Blueprint Podcast. Hi, folks. Mark Sisson here. And I'd like to tell you about my biggest undertaking yet, the Primal Health Coach Program. My mission is to create a global network of primal health coaches to help transform the health and consciousness of our communities into ones of optimal wellness and happiness. Becoming a primal health coach empowers you to take your primal passions to the next level and embark on a career you love, inspiring others to live lives of vitality and lasting wellness. If you dream of a career in health coaching but have been held back by worries such as the investment of time and money, then I encourage you to hesitate no longer. Health coaching is the fastest growing specialty in all of coaching. And we've created an online education program that allows you to learn from the comfort of your own home and at your own pace. The world needs primal health coaches to provide a blend of ancestral wellness solutions to the modern health crisis. The world needs you. Are you ready to become one of the world's most trusted, experienced, and knowledgeable health coaches? To learn more about this online certification program and to take the first step toward a career you love, visit PrimalHealthCoach.com and subscribe.